0: Greetings, greetings, fellow Who-Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We are at book 16, the 16th book released by Target as we go in publication order, and that book is a landmark one, Doctor Who and the Planet of the Spiders. This is the first book to feature a regeneration. It is the first Doctor Who book out of about six so far, where the Doctor dies at the end. This was published in October 1975, just as season 13 was just beginning to air on television, and it was probably about a year and a half, a little bit less, after Planet of the Spiders had aired on television. From this point forward, none of the books will have internal illustrations which is a big loss for the series, although this is written by Terrence Dix, Mr. Descriptive Powers, so perhaps the illustrations are not necessary when you look at some of the picture-painting choices that he chooses with his words. It's been a pretty eventful week in Doctor Who fandom as well, here in late February 2022. Last weekend I was in Los Angeles, recording largely from my hotel room, and now I am back in Brooklyn, and Gallifrey One is over and I'll be back at it next year. The next convention that I'll be at will be the next Long Island Doctor Who, which is coming up probably in about nine months from now. So that's a lot of non-convention time for me going forward. But you will be hearing from some of the new friends that I made at the last galley coming up on this show in the future, so that is certainly worth looking forward to. We've had two deaths in the Doctor Who extended family, unfortunately, in the last week. The last episode that I released before this was Book 15, Doctor Who, and The Green Death. And that was the story where Joe Grant leaves to marry Professor Jones. And unfortunately, a couple of days after I released The Green Death book, Stuart Bevan, who played Professor Jones, passed away. Still taken from us far too young. Stuart Bevan had been a tremendous uh, part of the Doctor Who DVD range when it came to The Green Death. He had recorded an in-character interview for the original DVD release almost 20 years ago, and then he was a big part of the Season 10 Blu-ray. He recorded a special trailer in which he and Joe Grant are still married, with grandkids saving the world, And, of course, he has done the the behind-the-sofa features with Joe Grant slash Katie Manning as well, talking about all the stories from that season, and not just his own. Stuart Bevan, a very big loss. Another loss this week was Henry Lincoln, the last surviving Doctor Who TV writer from the 1960s. Let that sink in. All those amazing stories, six full years of William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton, There is now nobody left who wrote an on-screen episode for those six seasons. Henry Lincoln had written The Abominable Snowman, of which you can hear my more mixed opinion in an earlier episode of this podcast. He also wrote The Web of Fear, or Co-wrote, I should say, which is coming up in a few weeks. And he also wrote The Dominators, for which his name was taken off, as well as his writing partner, Mervyn Hazeman, and The Dominators is not coming up on this show for quite some time because we are still in the 1975 books and that novelization came out at least a decade afterwards, give or take a couple of years so, Stuart Bevan from the 1970s, Henry Lincoln from the 1960s, two more links with Doctor Who, now lost to us forever this past week coming up next I'll be looking in-depth at Doctor Who and the Planet of the Spiders, and then later on in the program, my interview-slash-discussion about Planet of the Spiders and many other topics with Graham Burke from the amazing Doctor Who podcast, Reality Bomb. Let's get to it. (laughs) Doctor Who and the Planet of the Spiders. Televised as Planet of the Spiders, written by Terrence Dix, from a teleplay by Robert Sloman and Barry Letts, screen credit to Robert Sloman. Televised May and June, 1974, published in October, 1975. Part 1 of Planet of the Spiders is one of those deceptively leisurely episodes in which seemingly nothing happens. The doctor and brigadier go to a dance hall to visit a series of cut-rate comedy, dance, and live magic performances. Sarah Jane chases down a story from the disgraced Captain Yates, whom she barely knows, at a Buddhist monastery about 100 miles outside of London. The story's human villain, a tweed-clad, unemployed salesman named Lupton, is seen dabbling in the darker Buddhist arts, but he's a very low-key villain, much more low-key than the evil boss whom Lupton's actor, John Darth, had voiced in the previous year's season finale, which we talked about here last week in episode 15, Doctor Who and the Green Death. You wouldn't expect this story to unfold in the dramatic way that it later does. Terence tells us more than once that Lupton has haggard, bitter features, which hardly puts him on par with the Daleks, the Sontarans, or the Cybermen. But to my mind, Lupton comes from a much more interesting place than those otherworldly monsters, and he proves a unique villain for the first half of the serial. For example, in the book... Lupton flashes Sarah Jane a look of supercilious inquiry that verged on a sneer. After taking a nap, Lupton surfaced angrily from a deeply refreshing sleep, filled with dreams of vast, undefined power. I've never quite had a dream like that, but few Doctor Who bad guys come from a white-collar background like this, and very few of them ever get to dream. Lupton on TV was never given a first name, and he doesn't merit one in the book either. But the tweed blazer... And the Jack Nicholson hair that John Darth rocked on television is about all the characterization he needs, right? Doctor Who and the Planet of the Spiders also has no illustrations. The pictures had gone away for the novelization of Robot, which came out so soon after the TV story, and then briefly returned up through the Green Death, but now Alan Willow is gone from the line again, and no more Target books from here on out will ever bear internal pictures. Of course, with Dix's sometimes lyrical writing, you don't always need drawings. Terrence opens the book with a prologue, featuring a mystery couple on an expedition deeper than the Amazon, and we soon learn that this couple is none other than Professor Clifford Jones and his new bride, the former Josephine Grant. Actually, no. The book opens on the back cover blurb with a truly dreadful gag, with the brigadier looking down at the regenerating doctor and saying, Well, bless my soul, who will be next? But I digress. You could look at the novelization of Planet of the Spiders as the final installment, in what you could call Target's Joe Grant trilogy. While the books were published in basically random story order, here you have three releases in a row that, more by accident than design, tell Joe's entire life story. First, her TV debut in Terror of the Autons, then her TV exit in The Green Death, and then, in a bookend to The Green Death here, a return to Metabilis III, and the return of the powerful Blue Crystal, which the Doctor had taken earlier, and in the novelization only, one last time out for Joe Grant. Terence opens with one of his characteristically lush opening pan paragraphs, even more cinematic than many of his other best efforts. He writes, Night falls suddenly in the rainforests of the upper Amazon. One moment, the little clearing was bathed in greenish gloom, by the light filtering through the dense carpet of the treetops overhead. The next, it was plunged into darkness. Speaking of darkness, Terrence gets to play around with the narrative a bit. This chapter is made of whole cloth, not appearing at all on TV. And he flexes his literary muscles, too. As we'll see from the next two Terrence novels published immediately after this one, he's not going to have a chance to do much more muscle flexing for a little while. But here he has Cliff consider shooting his mutinous South American native porters. His business was saving lives, not destroying them the character reflects. Plus, Terence gets one last dig in at the Welsh, after Malcolm Hulk got to spend the whole of the last book in Wales. Languages came easily to Cliff, and he was fluent in all the Indian dialects. Perhaps it was something to do with being Welsh, Joe thought. After that, all other languages must seem simple. Unfortunately, the native tribesmen don't come across too well. It is still 1975, and Terence really has not embraced identity politics yet, if he ever will. The head porter grunts rather than speaks, and the South American tribe was called headhunters until, quote, not too long ago. The reveal that the prologue is from Joe's POV is kept as a surprise spoiler until the last paragraph. Josephine Jones, formerly Joe Grant, one-time member of UNIT, one-time assistant to that mysterious individual known only as the doctor, propped the case on her knee and began to write. Joe doesn't appear after the prologue, but when the Doctor receives her letter, late in the Part 1 material, he reflects that, quote, neither Joe's grammar nor her handwriting had improved since she left unit. There's also a discontinuity with the Green Death novelization because here Joe is returning the Metabilis Crystal, which Hulk never had the Doctor give her in the earlier book. This is Joe's final chronological appearance in Doctor Who, until the Sarah Jane adventures some 35 years later, excluding one late-1990s Eighth Doctor adventure, Genocide, which features a much darker and more depressed Joe Grant, which fortunately has been ridden out of the canon, thanks to the Sarah Jane adventures. After the story properly begins, Terence match cuts, or perhaps even better, slow dissolves Joe's outro into Mike Yates's intro. Quote, Outside, in the gardens of the big old country house, Mike Yates... Formerly Captain Yates, a one-time member of unit, one-time assistant to Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, ran through the darkness towards his car. He was more frightened than he had ever been in his life. The parallel sentence structure there, comparing Joe to Mike, is amazing, by the way. The rest of the Part 1 material is Terrence firing off barbs of observational humor, which is just as entertaining as a two-fisted action plot, which uh, Part 1 certainly is not. Of a bad comedian at the dance hall, the brigadier notes that he was, quote, "...talking very fast, as if afraid that the audience would make off before he could deliver his jokes. No one can blame them if they did," thought the brigadier bitterly. Of an exotic dancing girl, quote, "...Fatima and her remaining veils undulated from the stage." The doctor builds, quote, "...one of his own inimitable lash-ups of improvised scientific equipment." That's a line you can imagine Dick saying during a prickly-era DVD commentary thirty years later, along with the word buffon. Sarah wants to crown the doctor with one of his own Bunsen burners when he ignores her, and also makes a comment about researching a story on grassroots resistance to property speculators, which, as someone living in an area of Brooklyn with skyrocketing rents, hello, Sarah Jane, please come over here and tell our story, please. Of course, there's also a little time to be portentous. Even the Doctor didn't realize that his interest in Professor Clegg was to be the prelude to the most dangerous adventure of his life. Now, often, that sort of line is false advertising, used to make a run-of-the-mill story sound more breathless than it is, but this is the first of only six of the 170 or so target novelizations, including the modern-day books, in which the Doctor dies on the last page. So, in this case, Terence is actually quite right to say so. Clegg has written exactly as you'd expect, for a character portrayed by the hapless Cyril Shaps, who portrayed a similar string of characters throughout the Troughton, Perpby, and Tom Baker eras. Dix describes Professor Clegg's clothing as shabby and rather insignificant, but tells us the professor, who's not really a professor at all, did his best to put a good face on things. After the doctor reveals that he knows about both Clegg's secrets, which are forged academic credentials and true ESP powers, professor seems to deflate like a punctured balloon. The book adds in an explanation for Clegg's death, fright-induced heart failure, which was never provided on TV. The book, as you've probably gathered so far, is pretty radically restructured from the TV serial, with several sequences invented or rearranged. As I've talked about in many of the previous novelizations from this era, the mid-1970s books were written from rehearsal, or scripts, earlier scripts, rather than the final televised product. There are many books that contain more scenes, and more and often better dialogue, than their TV counterparts. This is one of them, although not quite as radical a departure as Doctor Who in the Green Death had been last week. One loss is that Harry Sullivan is not mentioned by name. Here, the book uses the original name of unit's off-screen medic, Dr. Sweetman, a name which Nicholas Courtney changed during recording in recognition of Harry joining the regular cast in Robot, which was filmed concurrently to Planet of the Spiders. As Robot had already been novelized, and Harry Sullivan has already been in a target book, it seems that Dix just plain forgot to change the line when transcribing out the earlier scripts. Another big change is that Choji gets an additional scene in the Part 2 material, which was removed before filming, warning Captain Yates not to get involved with investigating Lupton's evildoing. On the surface, Choji should be the TV story's weak link, as in The Abominable Snowman six years earlier. He's an Asian character, played by a Western actor in stilted makeup, and speaking entirely in fortune-cookie slogans. When reading the print version of all the Buddhist riddles and Zen koans, one senses Terence Dix rolling a world-weary eye at all the philosophies that Barry Letts, a Buddhist himself, would have brought to the production office. Choji is described with an ivory-colored face, which broke into a thousand tiny smiling wrinkles, and he speaks in a clipped yet sing-song voice, quote. Later on, he giggles disconcertingly. Terence also seems to get in some barbs at Letz's leanings, observing an added dialogue, when Choji talks about the fullness of the void or the emptiness of the ten thousand things, that Sarah hadn't understood a word of it. To which Choji gigglingly replies, quite right, the Dharma that can be spoken is no true Dharma. But of course, at the end of the story, you learn, Lost Horizon style, that Choji is not a Buddhist, or Asian, or in this case, even a human at all. So he comes across much better in print than all those one-dimensional monks from The Abominable Snowman that Terence had written for a few books earlier. The doctor senses that something is lurking beneath Choji's placid surface, as the two men debate during the Part 3 material. Quote, Each of the two men was calm, polite, and utterly determined. Under the unassuming exterior of the little monk, the doctor could feel an intelligence and will that was a match for his own. Tommy, the mentally challenged young man who serves as building porter at the monastery, is also described in terms that veer between sentimental and patronizing. "'Tommy was a hulking, slow-witted youth, usually described as simple by his fellow villagers,' He had worked at the monastery ever since it opened. Tommy was fiercely devoted to Joji and his fellow monks, perhaps because they treated him with exactly the same quiet courtesy that they extended to everyone else. Sarah also notes, quote, For all his size and obvious strength, his round blue eyes held the simple curiosity of a child. All this material about Tommy will pay off much later in the book. In the Part 2 material, the spiders appear, and use Lupton as a vehicle for retrieving the doctor's stolen metabilis crystal. They've promised Lupton earthly riches, of course never intending to deliver. Dix cleverly describes the voices. Quote, Then the spider spoke to him, not out loud, of course, but inside his head. Her voice, somehow Lupton knew the creature was female, was clear, sweet, and icily evil. The book uses a twelve-chapter structure, which doesn't quite adhere rigidly to a six-part format. Most cliffhangers come at the end of the even-numbered chapters with an exception or two, but you can sense Dick's stretching to force the material into this format. Chapter 3, for example, ends on a false moment of peril, with Lepton Spider warning him that he might have to kill the doctor, a moment not included in the TV broadcast. The much-derided chase scene, which takes up the back half of Part 2 on TV, is reproduced, at least for my money, pretty faithfully in the book, stay tuned for a counterpoint, with the Doctor getting internal thoughts to help narrate for us exactly why the Doctor changes vehicle every few minutes. This is also the only target book to feature John Pertwee's flying car, the who as Malcolm Hulk gleefully excised that vehicle's only other appearance when he novelized Invasion of the Dinosaurs a few books later. Dick seems to enjoy writing The Chase. He slips into the head of a police officer, who gets to describe Sarah as, quote, a trendy-looking bird, the doctor borrows some flying tactics from the Red Baron, and of course, he writes, quote, The brigadier had placated angry prime ministers in his time, but an English policeman in hot pursuit of a motor ring offense was beyond his powers. I'm going to assume that line is based on some real-life experience that Terence had trying to talk his way out of a speeding ticket. After the break, Dix transports us away from Earth at the end of Chapter 5, and most of the last four parts of the story will occur away from Earth away from our planet of the Buddhists. The spiders are coming, and so are some of the worst acted and directed humans in the history of Doctor Who. Fortunately, Terrence will prove superior to the material he was given to adapt, and the final seven chapters of the novelization, they're going to be far more interesting than what we got on television.
1: I'm sorry, I'm, I'm so sorry, Doctor. Well, what are you going to be sorry about?
0: You did very well. You should be proud of yourself.
1: To let that creature take me over like that. I mean, I actually volunteered.
0: We are all apt to surrender ourselves to domination. Even the strongest of us. Do you mean me? Not all spiders sit on the back.
1: I don't understand. You're not saying they've taken over the doctor, are you?
0: Oh, no, Sarah, no. No, he's talking about my greed.
1: Greed? You?
0: Yes, my greed for knowledge. For information. He's saying that all this is basically my fault. If I hadn't taken the crystal in the first place... I know who you are now. You were always a little slow in the uptake, my boy. It's been a
1: long, long time. You know each other? Ah, yes. Yes, he was my teacher, My, my guru, if you like.
0: In another time, another place. Another life. Oh, no. Don't tell me you're a Time Lord, too. I am. But the discipline they serve was not for me.
1: No, nor for me.
0: I wouldn't have chosen your alternative. To borrow a TARDIS was a little naughty, to say the least. The realization of Metabilis Three on TV is not great, Bob, to quote a very famous and funny line from Mad Men, but Terence, in the book, is freed from the constraints of too early CGI circa 1974 with overly bright studio lights and bad acting. Our first glimpse of Metabilis in the book, when Sarah arrives in Chapter 6, it teases all the senses. It feels dry and hot, and Sarah can feel sand and pebbles underfoot. The air smells of, quote, a sort of richness, a not unpleasant spicy tang. She can see yellow sandstone and, quote, unquote, fantastically shaped, boulders with towering blue mountains. The desert was strewn with a carpet of many-colored shining gemstones. Terence can set a scene. This is what we were all hoping to see on TV, but didn't. The villagers live in a patch of green, cultivated fields edging a sparkling river. Crank out the 70mm film for this one, right? When Lupton arrives a chapter or two later, his meal menu includes the taste of fiery blue wine, chunks of roasted mutton, rough whole round bread, and strange exotic fruits. Excuse me, I'm kind of starving right now. That actually sounds really good. Terrence has the magical ability to explain away a plot hole with a sarcastic aside. After Sarah is rescued from death by the angry villagers, she observes that it, quote, "...seemed odd to be exchanging introductions with people who seconds ago had been planning to kill her." The detail extends to the Spider Queen, who in the book is named Huath, H-U-A-T-H, which sounds just realistic enough to avoid silly space name syndrome, and anyone who read Christopher Bulis' Doctor Who novels and The Virgin and BBC lines know of what I speak. The episode three cliffhangers spruced up for the book, Sarah laments at the end of chapter six, oh doctor of all the times to arrive, a line that I can hear Liz Slayton recite so perfectly on TV in my head that, as a victim of the Mandela effect, I'm always kind of stunned whenever I watch the story that the line is not there. The queen discovers Sarah by sensing her angry and defiant thought waves, an upgrade over the TV where the queen just saw her through a doorway when the Doctor bows down before the Queen, it's, quote, an elaborate style he'd learned at the court of the good Queen Bess, the classic Dick's historical figure aside, that you have to wonder if it influenced Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, who had their own little 10th Doctor-slash-Queen-Bess story arc planned about 35 to 40 years later. And the Part 3 cliffhanger comes, unusually for Terrence in mid-chapter, when the Doctor is blasted by the Queen's crackling finger of flame, rather than on TV, by the somewhat less telegenic Walter Randall. And remember how wooden and flat the Metabilis villagers were on TV? Terrence didn't get the memo. As the doctor lays, presumably dying, from the Queen's blast in the Episode 4 material, Rigo looks on with, quote, the calmness of one well used to death and suffering. As he usually does, Terence can summarize each one-dimension guest character with a perfect sentence and it's Sarah who observes that, quote, the younger and more hot-headed Tuar was urging open revolt, while Arik insisted that this would be mere suicide. One of the few mistakes Terence makes is having Sarah take off her shoes in Chapter 7, and she doesn't reclaim them before she gets arrested, meaning that she's barefoot for the rest of the Metabulus chapters. Unless there was a Manolo Blahnik outpost on Metabilis 3, hope stepping on that carpet of many-colored shining gemstones didn't hurt her too much. Better is the added moment of tension, as Arak retrieves the Doctor's strange machine, which involves Arak outwitting a patrol of guards. That's an extra bit of dashing and daring that we didn't get on television. Quote, Dawn was approaching on Metabilis III. The planet's huge, bright sun, far closer to Metabilis than our sun is to Earth, was rising rapidly. The gemstones of the desert reflected its rays in a hundred different colors. In the village... The humans stirred uneasily, knowing that it would soon be time to go and toil in the fields for their spider rulers. Listen to that crystal-clear prose. Tickles the senses, teases the mind, and yet hardly any words longer than three syllables, and not a single run-on sentence. Later on, the jeweled desert stretched away to the distant blue mountains, too. Of course, while the doctor is busy taking charge in the village, the novelization cuts out some parallel history lessons between Sabor and Sarah Jane, Sabor, dad to Arak and Tuar, has more to do on screen, but Terrence uses the Void to do some subtle world-building, giving Arak a resistance organization and runners, and telling us that Metabilis 3 has other human villages too. When Arak kills the guard captain, oh, that Walter Randall, the doctor sadly accepts the death, quote, as always, Terrence writes, the taking of life saddened and sickened him. Another trademark Terence line comes in Chapter 9, when the Doctor, as he always does, tries to give orders to his arresting guards. For a moment, Terence writes, the Captain was so astonished at his audacity that he almost let the Doctor go. I don't care how many target books that line appears in, probably at least 25%, if not more. Guess me every time. As Terence writes for the Spiders, he gives us in the Episode 5 material a wonderfully gruesome detail, not made explicit on TV. The queen was silent. Pressing her advantage, the spider went on. This is not the first mistake the queen has made. Maybe she is growing old. Maybe it is time for a coronation. Since the main feature of a spider coronation is the ceremonial eating of the old queen by her successor, the spider queen reacted violently to this suggestion. She sought desperately for some move that would restore her power. For the second straight Sarah Jane book, and there have been two now, Sarah faints in print, where she didn't on TV. Here, fainting from pain in chapter 9, when she's released from her spider cocoon. Of course, in the book, the cocoon was dangling from the ceiling, whereas on TV, there was just a comfortable lie-down on top of a table, with the cocoon presumably affording mattress-like padding of reasonable comfort. Something else missing is Sarah's negotiation with the Spider Queen. On TV, before allowing herself to be possessed, she negotiated for the release of the two-legged slaves. In the book, unfortunately, that material is excised, taking away a little bit of Sarah Jane's agency, but giving her fainting in return. Of course, for all the add-ons, details of the spider's dietary habits, Sarah's fainting habit, it's what's taken away from the book that's more remarkable. Jenny Laird's unfortunately delivered speech in episode 5 about raising Eric at her breast and having to mourn all alone Just not here. When the Doctor encounters the Great One in Episode 5, Terrence describes her voice in a way that would do Maureen Morris proud, high-pitched and edgy, like chalk squeaking on a slate. This isn't quite how she sounded on TV, but later on, in the final chapter, Terrence writes her lines in all capital letters, which really does get to the point. The Great One's mind control of the Doctor, a shocking moment on TV. When was John Pertwee ever bested by an adversary before? Is missing in the book. That's a big loss. It is somewhat made up for by the doctor's observation. Quote, whatever powers, whatever towering intelligence the great one had attained, the price had been too high. The great one was mad. Another big change in the book, and I don't think Terence would ever quite do this again—at least not for a very long time—is a massive restructuring of the scenes, kind of like what John Blum talked about when he was here discussing the abominable snowmen with us. Episode 4 on TV had a lot of material set back on Earth, with Tommy's transformation, Yates negotiating with Barnes. All that is taken out of the corresponding novelization material, which has several chapters run straight through on Metabilis with no intercutting. Instead, it's relocated to the Episode 5 material in the book, starting in Chapter 10, which is called Return to Earth. Quote, Tommy spent the rest of the day crouched in his tiny cupboard, studying the blue crystal, and wondering what to do with it. The little glowing fires in the crystal seemed to soothe him. Then they almost seemed to talk to him, telling him that there were things he had to do. But what things? He rummaged in his box of treasures, and produced a tatty child's primer, a relic of the days before people had given up, trying to teach him anything. He'd hung on to it, in the vain hope that one day the mysterious black squiggles called letters would unlock their secrets. Now... With the blue crystal shining beside him, he tried again. Terence, as much as he celebrates Tommy's mental enhancements, though again, listen later on for a counterpoint, gets as much fun digging in at Lupton's less intelligent partners in crime back on Earth. Talk about advertising, Yates thinks. They were the most inept bunch of conspirators he had ever tackled. End quote. Terence also doesn't make much of an effort to characterize the other members of Lupton's crew beyond Barnes. Of Moss... Kiever and Land, and if you can tell them apart on TV, boy you're some fan. We learn, for example, that Kiever is only taciturn, though we do learn that when they blast energy from their fingertips, their opponents are flung to one side like Thistledown. (laughs) Huh, Thistledown. Here I am, 48 years old, and I'm still looking up definitions of some of the words in target books. Isn't that neat? More descriptively, Terrence also uses his trademark-adjective pairs to soften Choji's oblique explanation for not being surprised at Tommy's changes. When everything is new, how can anything be a surprise? Tommy is, quote, baffled, but somehow reassured, close quote, at this pointed non-answer. Another big structural change is the episode 5 cliffhanger, a furious bit of post-production editing on TV. The first part of Planet of the Spiders that I ever saw on TV, thinking about it, would have been Episode 6, which my PBS station, Channel 21 on Long Island, aired out of sequence, one night only, airing all the regeneration stories they had the license for, from War Games Episode 10, up through Twin Dilemma Part 1, all on the same night, during Pledge Drive season, I don't have to tell you. When I watched the Episode 6 of Planet of the Spiders in isolation, I had no way of telling where the Episode 5 cliffhanger would have been. The actual moment, the attack on Tommy outside Kanpo's door, is kicked deep into the text of chapter 11, finally appearing on page 108, when the book ends on page 122. Although when the doctor and Kanpo finally meet, here in chapter 11, Terence has them quote, dropping instinctively into Tibetan, although of course not going so far as to use actual Tibetan words, he'd handle this somewhat differently years later for the Mind of Evil book. If you're wondering if the doctor is going to rub his chin in this book, he does, in chapter 11, on page 104. Another line Terrence uses here that you'll see again years later in State of Decay is "canpo," producing a newly learned colloquialism with evident pride. That's in chapter 12. Another detail not made quite clear in the book. On TV, we learn that Canpo saw the spider on Sarah's back all the time during their episode 6 meeting, and by taking the doctor's hand, the doctor can see the spider through Kanpo's eyes. This is removed for the book, or maybe it was added in the studio at the last minute, where the doctor doesn't see the spider until it literally materializes on her back in public. A larger disappointment, and you'll hear more about this during my interview, is that Kanpo's identification of the doctor's greed for knowledge, for information, his theft of the great crystal, is what sets the story's deadly events into motion to begin with. The interview with Kanpo in Chapter 11 is greatly truncated, as will be the third Doctor's death scene, by the omission of that revelation. When the Doctor returns to Metabilis in Chapter 12, we're given a better explanation for how the spiders managed to enslave Arak and Tuar. Here, in the heart of the mountain, close to the Cave of Crystal, the protection you gave them, the spider says to the Doctor, was weakened. These two were rash. They ventured too far, and we captured their minds." Lupton's death, in episode 6 on TV, always seemed a bit cursory to me. Granted, this is a slim book, only 115 pages of text, and that's covering a lot of TV material. But you can find the great two sentences that speak more volumes than three pages of internal POV might have done. Quote, Lupton should have seen that his usefulness, never very great, was now over. His life hung by a thread as fine as a spider's web. Lost, to all sense of preservation, he ranted on. Lupton's death serves one last purpose in the book, in a way you won't see on television. The queen spoke, These two legs can do us a last service, my sisters. Let us feast on our favorite food once more before the end. The spider council began to close in on Lupton's body. Terence doesn't quite take the opportunity to narrate the doctor's death from his own POV, not like he'll do in Caves of Androzani in another ten years. But the Great One, the Doctor observes, is, quote, the last wonder he would ever see, which, if you savor those seven words for a minute, is an astonishing capstone to the Pertwee era with its 700 wonders of the universe. I got chills reading that, anyway. And, quote, even in such an extreme situation, the Doctor's scientific curiosity was still strong. It had been a dominant characteristic all his life, and it did not abandon him at the end. The Great One dies in a torrent, as I said earlier, of all capital letters. Terence isn't quite clear why the Great One's death also kills off all the other spiders. He just says, quote, their minds linked in some mystic way to hers, close quote, which you can sense him sitting at his desk, rolling his eyes at another plot contrivance. But the villagers who didn't emote on TV, at least of the book had to observe, tomorrow would indeed be a new dawn for Metabilis Three, the dawn of freedom. The regeneration, when it happens, comes quick. A three-page add-on. Terence uses the time to clear up missing plot threads. Nicholas Courtney, busy filming robot at the same time, was only in the first production block of spiders and never made it to the monastery. Here, the brigadier recalls an apocryphal visit in flashback. There was also some story about the abbot disappearing, but since no one seemed very sure if he'd ever been there in the first place, the brigadier proposed to let that one strictly alone. LOL. And the Brigadier uses his influence to get Tommy admitted to university. See the 1996 New Adventure Happy Endings for one possible theory as to where Tommy ended up, by the way. When the doctor dies, it's the first time that's happened in a target novelization. And the Brigadier, fittingly, for a story set partly in a Buddhist monastery, and written by the TV authors with Buddhist principles in mind, gets in a near-religious observance at the end. "'Brigadier, look,' said Sarah. "'It's starting!' A golden glow was appearing round the Doctor's body. Even as they watched, the features began to blur and change. Well, bless my soul, said the Brigadier. Here we go again. Of course, the third Doctor's not really dead. He appears in two of the next three novelizations released after this one, before the line shifts to the new Tom Baker era. But Terrence adapts this Doctor's final TV story with considerable poetry and drama and wicked detail. It's a short book, but Terrence puts a lot of thought into cleaning up the structure and some of the plot holes. And as his books will start to come faster and faster, when he's writing eight a year rather than just two or three, we won't see the like of Planet of the Spiders again for some considerable time to come. Coming up next, my interview with
1: Granberg. He knew if he went back there he would destroy himself. and never see him again.
0: time Vortex. The TARDIS brought me home. Oh Oh.
1: Oh, Doctor, why did you have to go back? I had to face my, my fear, Sarah.
0: I had to face my fear. is more important than us going on living.
1: Please, don't die.
0: A tear? Sarah-Jane? No, don't cry.
1: While this life...
0: We're back, and I'm happy to welcome my next guest to Doctor Who Literature. You may have read his nonfiction books, you may have seen him speak, you may have heard his incredible podcast, Reality Bomb. My next guest combines the attributes of three of my favorite podcasters. He has the interview prowess of Terry Gross, he has the intensity of Dan Carlin, and his writing has the seductive erudition of Karina Longworth. So join us,
1: won't you, as we welcome Graham Burke, to Doctor Who Literature. Graham, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. That's a, that's quite a build-up. I hope I can even live up to a tenth of that. I'm just happy you've come down market for the next hour. Uh, 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 well, it's always a delight to be with you. I mean, your, your erudition about Doctor Who is uh, knows no boundaries, and, uh, and I have been a tremendous fan of yours for years. So,
0: You and I have known each other since the Rec arts Doctor Who days of the early to mid 1990s when rec arts was still the wild west of doctor who fandom and we have traded many thousands of words sometimes civilly about different doctor (laughs) who stories over the years very occasionally (laughs) but one of the few things that you and i have never talked about at length is the novelization so when i was drawing up my guest list for the early episodes of this podcast i wanted to sign you down for an open slot as early as i could and the first book that you and I agreed upon was Planet of the Spiders. So before we talk about that, I want to just go back and explore the origins of your fandom a little bit. This is your first time on the show of hopefully many more appearances. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to just figure out how and when you became a fan. So I know you grew up in Canada. How? What was your first exposure to Doctor Who? How old were you? Where did you see it?
1: Well, my first exposure was probably when I was about. Um, um, it would have been when I was seven. It was a Doctor Who started on uh, on Canadian television in the mid seventies. Um, so it, it was shown sort of once a week on uh, on the public television station in Canada. Uh, I I watched several Pertwee episodes. Uh, not. All together, but you know, I, I, I so I saw snippets. Uh, Planet of Spiders was actually one of them. I, I, I have, I, uh, but I really didn't become a fan of Doctor Who until 1984, uh, when I was about 14 years old. Uh, it was May 1984. Uh, the episode was Pyramids of Mars, episode two uh and i was homesick uh and i was kind of lethargic and my sister had just finished watching 321 contact uh as as you do in the 1970s and uh she got up and left and and i was and i didn't feel like changing the channel and uh i watched uh, dr who instead of one day at a time and the rest is history basically and that was the beginning of the rest of my life so <laughs> uh and i got and the target novels happened very shortly thereafter i i the first First one I would read was uh, well, my friend, best friend Rob was hugely into Doctor Who. The whole reason why I started, I watched this, you know, show that he liked because it was it was because it, it was a show that he liked and it had time travel, which I love as a concept, and it had and it was British, which I love because I love Monty Python and I love Hitchhiker's Guide and all kinds of things. So I wa- So I I immediately raided his Target novel collection, and the first one I ever read was. Doctor Who and the Daleks, and then I read the Three Doctors, um, and they were both from his collection. So, I, and and the first, and much later down the line, and we'll get to this, is uh, is uh, Planet of the Spiders, which I read around, uh, I think, around uh, November 1984. Uh, again, I stole his copy uh, that he kept in his bedroom. So,
0: yeah, I'm just curious. If you had gotten a little more into 321 Contact, your primary fandom could have been the Bloodhound Gang rather than Doctor Who.
1: <laughs> I was a little too old for it. To be honest, I think the re- my sister had left the room, actually, a lot sooner, a lot very early into 321 Contact. But I had a crush on the Redhead, so I kept it on for that reason. So, yeah, I probably could have been a fan for that reason, for sure.
0: So the very first novelization that you read would have been Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks. Now this is 1984. This is probably before Hartnell starts coming over to North America. I know that I saw a Hartnell episode for the first time at my very first convention in Manhattan in the summer of 1985. They showed a movie version of Dalek invasion of earth. And I'm just curious if you're reading a Hartnell novelization in 1984, did that confuse you? Did it grab you? Did you know who the characters were? Did it throw you off that it was written entirely in the
1: first person? I understood it, actually, quite well. I mean, I, I mean, I understood the Doctor Who lore. I mean, th- that was the great thing of it becoming a fan was that, you know, I fell hard for it, and I wanted to learn everything about it, and I, and I got my hands on anything I could. And so, yeah, I was quite excited to read it. I have to say I remember... I remember looking through. We. I remember not long after reading it, I was uh, with my friend Rob in Toronto, where we were at Baca, which is a uh, which is a, a much loved science fiction bookstore in Toronto. And and uh, I and I was there. and We were looking at a uh, Doctor Who a celebration, which was you know one of the first coffee table books ever done about Doctor Who. It was much too expensive for a fourteen year old to buy, but I was thumbing through it. Uh, with Rob, and we saw the pages where they were doing screen grabs from the original pilot version of An Unearthly Child. And I remember pointing out a couple of the pictures with Rob and saying, oh, that must be the scenes where they meet on Barnes Common. Because... (laughs) Because <laughs> I thought, because I thought for sure, you know, this was a straight-up adaptation of the very first Doctor Who story, and uh, and shortly after that, I think I got a program guide, the program guide from uh, John Mark Markofficier, and then I realized, oh no, actually, there was a whole story in the Stone Age. This is actually takes liberties, but you know, I, I really, I really love the, I love the first one. I, I mean, I would have, I, I, I would have absolutely have adored Ben being on your, being on your first episode doing that one, because I really, I really love that. I really love Whitaker's novelization. I think he's a wonderful writer. I think his, I think he, the way he takes from uh, a lot of different sources and, and builds it, it's very reminiscent of Out of the Silent Planet, which is one of my very favorite science fiction novels, C.S. Lewis's book. So it, it had a lot of wonderful elements to it. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, I, I I was never taken aback by it, but I did read a lot of Doctor Who books before I'd actually seen those Doctors properly. Like, you know, my only glimpse of Patrick Troughton was what I dimly remembered from the, watching the three Doctors as a fi, as a five or six year old, and and my uh, and and looking at uh and uh, looking at him in Jason and the Argonauts, where he plays a very very different role to the second Doctor. <laughs> so
0: yes. I remember being home sick from school in the first grade. This is probably 1979 or 1980. And I was named after Jason from Jason and the Argonauts, my parents both being New York City school teachers in the early 70s. It's what you did. Oh. So they told me very excitedly that the movie after which I was named was airing on TV in the afternoon. So I vividly remember Patrick Troughton's one scene because it terrified me to bits. And I was also feeling a little bit sick, so I went to lie down on the bed and hide under the blankets, and I fell asleep and missed the end of the movie. (laughs) And I didn't watch Jason and the Argonauts again, probably for another 30 years when the Blu-ray came out.
1: Rob had it on, on, uh, Betamax, uh, Rob's father had a Betamax player. And so he, so he had it and Rob, Rob loved those kinds of, those kinds of movies, you know, he, he loved Amicus, he loved Hammer. He loved all those, all, all those sorts of, uh, and, and, he, and lots of, lots of movies like that. And I think he's big on the, uh. What was the other one? At the Earth's Core was another one that he absolutely loved. So I watched, uh, so yeah, I remember seeing the Patrick Trouton scene and Patrick, Trouten, I remember being shocked at how low Patrick voice, Trouton's voice was because the, when I read The Second Doctor, I, I pictured him having a, much higher register which is actually what he does employs when he plays the doctor but you know so he was like you know but so it, it was it was this shock to discover that actually patrick Hurt is an amazing uh, character actor who has tremendous depth breadth and uh yeah he was just playing abuse just playing the role of jason the Argonauts like he would as opposed to how he played the second doctor
0: there are a couple of comedic groans that he does in Jason and the Argonauts, which sound a little bit like season six Patrick Troughton, but you're right. Otherwise, it's an entirely different performance. Yeah. And speaking of childhood memories, I've told the story on the podcast before. Now, I didn't start having guests until episode five slash book five, which was Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters when I was joined by your co-author, Stacy Smith. But I told the story in the very first episode. When I first bought Doctor Who and the Daleks, and this is the 1980s reprint with the 1970s logo on the cover, oh, man. I bought it in the bookstore, was very excited. We were still in the mall having lunch, and I started reading the book, and I didn't recognize anything at all that happened in the first two chapters. And I don't know if I had already seen Daleks on PBS at that point, or if I just knew that this wasn't how the story went. And I just thought, this is not for me. And I actually, hold on to your hats, I actually returned the book. And I got a different book instead, and I actually handed it back to the cashier who was still at the register and said, this isn't for me, and I bought another one. And a couple of years later, I finally went back, and I bought it for real, and I engaged with it. I was a little bit older and a little more mature, but that's probably my worst, most embarrassing Doctor Who story, returning the novelization of Doctor Who and the Daleks because it wasn't the way it appeared on television.
1: That is very much, very on brand for you, Jason, I have to say. Um, <laughs> that is I, peak I, Jason. I, Complete, completely unexpected. Completely, I've only ever returned one book in my life, and it was War of the Daleks by John Peel. And 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 I remember at the time I gave it back. I, I actually bought the book. I I was living in Britain at the time, and I was taking the Docklands Light Railway home. It was like two stops from Canary Wharf, where the where the bookstore was. Picked up the book, started reading it. Said got back on the Docklands Right Railway, came all the way back to Canary Wharf, walked back in and said, yeah, I want to return this. And, 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 <laughs> and they, said, they said, why? I said, because it's a terrible book. <laughs> and they said that's fine so i i bought the book of lists by justin richardson said but yes uh, which is not very good either but uh it was a load better than that so yeah i i mean i've been i've been very friendly i've been occasionally i've seen john peel at conventions and occasionally been friendly with him he seems like a very nice chap but i'm sorry that was a terrible book so
0: you know john sat down for an interview with me when i was doing my new adventures documentary Uh, You were in the same episode, actually, for Trap 1. And then John and I were just on a panel together at uh, Gallifrey, Gallifrey 1 in L.A. this past weekend. We were both on a panel about the new adventures. He was one of the celebrity guests, and I was one of the seldom heard from panelists sitting all the way down at the end of the table. (laughs) I want to say that I joined the 8th Doctor Adventures group on Facebook, and they've been Mm -hmm. engaged in a group reread of the EDAs. Now, I ejected somewhere early in the 1998 books because the line was not nearly as good as I remembered it when I was in my 20s. But when I read War of the Daleks this time around, it was a thousand times better than I remember it being. And I'm not just saying that because I want John to appear on the show, but the (laughs) action-adventure sequences are written from the high technical skill The continuity references are actually a lot of fun. The interludes with the Draconians are much better than I remembered. And yes, the Doctor and Sam Jones are maybe not the best Doctor and companion duo, but that's certainly not John Peel's fault. He was just giving the guidelines that he was uh, written. And when the end of the book ties into the beginning of Power of the Daleks, maybe you could say he's taking the love of continuity a little too far, but again, that's not the only Eighth Doctor adventure to, to commit that sin. So if you want to try that again, it's actually, I think, a lot better than you recall.
1: I think I did end up buying it in the end. But I have to say, on the whole, the Eighth Doctor range is a gigantic disappointment to me. To the point where I was recently, uh, as you can see, Jason, behind me, or you can see my Doctor Who shelf. Um, so there, so that is my giant shelf of Target novels and uh, my new adventurous novels. And I, was unpa- I, I, I moved to this place a couple of years ago, and I finally was unpacking like a year ago. And I un- open, open. I open. I had the box marked Doctor Who books, and I was like, "Oh great! Can't get out. The, wait to get out the Target novels. This is so great." Open it up, It was my box of Eighth Doctor adventures, and I went, "Oh damn." And, 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 and that, and that was my sign. That was my Marie Kondo moment where I just said, this is nuts. This sparks the exact opposite of joy for me. And I immediately went on Twitter and said, if anyone wants any EDAs, I am giving away my collection, except for a few select books. And, uh, and, uh, and I gave away a bunch of books to a bunch of people who, who were desperate to plug holes in their collection. I was happy to help them. And uh, yeah, I because I just suddenly... Re- I, I I remember reading those books. And and after a while, it was just one of those exercises in realizing, daddy's never coming home again. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, like you had like, you know, five glorious years of prose that was, you know, people trying to push the boundaries, doing interesting things. And then you just... And then you had like a bunch of years where they were kind of doing bland vanilla books. And then they said, oh, wait, we can we can we can start doing really unbelievably, you know, profound books. And the, the capital P profound books were were just basically, I don't know, it was just kind of like. Stuff that wouldn't wouldn't would have gotten a D in a in a in a in a university creative writing class. You know, it was someone who had just huffed an awful, uh, you know, you know, just basically, you know, took a bunch, took a bu- took a bunch of Philip K. Dick, huffed it, and thought, oh yeah, I can, I can, I, I can, I can, I can, I, I, I can, I can, I can write profound stuff, with, and and thus fa- faction paradox is born, and and everyone then tried to you know outdo each other, and and they never. But you never ever got another, like, you know, with the version range. I always thought, like, once a year you were going to get like a set piece or you're going to get a damaged goods or you were going to get, you know, once a year there was always this unbelievably good, this is so good prose. I, this is, this belongs in a Booker Prize novel kind of, kind of level of fiction. And, and you just got very ordinary books. And then, and then the Justin Richards era happened and it was, and, and it just got duller and duller and duller. And I just went, So, yeah, so that was my rant about the EDAs. I did not think you were going to get that out of me today, Jason, but there you go. I'll just say you cannot be profound
0: on purpose. Either you have it in you or you don't. And if somebody who's not profound is trying to be profound, you wind up with the ancestor cell. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah pretty much oh my god that was such a terrible book that was one of the first books i was like okay i can't wait for that to go to the charity shop yeah I, I it was it was there was a lot of books like that like and i just kind of got very tired of it and and there are a few good standouts i still think the blue angels is a very good book i think alien i think i think alien bodies is amazing um to give lawrence miles his due i think there uh, i think uh i think there's i think there's some really kind of uh, you know decent books in 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 the range but i also think you know um i really love casualties of war i don't remember but oh yes a lot um but i and i remember for years i championed the face eater and then i reread it and went what are you thinking graham so i don't know it, it's 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 there's there's a lot of good stuff but honestly uh on the whole i just i i found it was it's it's a it's a range that meets expectations most of the time, and rather than and rather than and I'd been used to a range of Doctor Who that exceeded expectations.
0: See, the Face Eaters came along at exactly the right time because it was a straightforward police procedural. There was a character who was clearly cast as Linda Hunt, and yep. coming in the middle of a lot of overly profound, overly drawn out books, that just told a story, got in and got out, and it might not work out of sequence, but coming when it did, I enjoyed it a lot more than the books that came before or after.
1: And that, that, that's exactly what happened to me. I loved it because it was just finally just a straight ahead doctor who story it was great um when you reread it out of sequence you kind of go oh this is kind of weak you know um everything everything stacy smith told me about this book is absolutely right um but you know sorry stacy
0: <laughs> the book that i hated the most out of the early edas was longest day by an author named mike collier it was nasty brutish and long and what i didn't know until a couple of months ago was that mike collier doesn't exist
1: no, you didn't know that it was Stephen Cole, yeah. I yeah. did
0: not. Surprisingly, considering that I was at the epicenter of records at the time, I didn't find that out until the year beginning with the twenty twenty.
1: Yeah, those those are it's at the, it. That is not a particularly nice novel either. Like, there's just lots of really, really terribly, terrible novels in that in that in that range, and you just kind of go. Yeah. I miss, I, I, I just, you know, I loved the, I loved the NAs. The NAs were my, the NAs were my jam and the NAs came at the right time in my life. The NAs came just as I was in university, you know, it was just, you know, it was nice to read Dr. Who that was fun that seemed grown up. And it was just, and, but it was also just version had this kind of standard that says, go nuts with the pros. We don't care. And it's like, okay. Um, you know, I think some of Russell's writing in in Damaged Goods is some of the best writing I've ever read, period. I think it's a fantastic novel, irrespective of the Doctor Who in it.
0: What's funny is that when I had Ross from Gallifrey's Most Wanted on here a few episodes ago, he was coming from the exact opposite place as you and me. (laughs) You and I love the New Adventures. We were fortunate enough to get our name in a couple of New Adventures, and we were there. We were hanging out with the authors on arts. We knew where they were coming from. Ross wasn't reading Doctor Who during the NA's years. He came in with the EDAs. He's a few years older than us. And for him, the EDAs are where the books are at, which is quite the opposite of us. So at some point, I may try and get the two of you in the same virtual podcast room to do a Battle Royale. But in in case you're joining us, this is uh, Graham Burke and Jason talking about the We Hate the EDAs Hour. (laughs) Let's take a brief uh, change of format and let's go off the boards. And instead of talking about how much we hate the EDAs, let's talk a little bit about Terrence Dix, who, by the way, wrote the first and much derided EDA, The Eight Doctors. But that is a story for another day, to misquote Paul Harvey. Indeed. So my first Terrence Dix was Invasion of Time. And I don't know if you remember your first Terrence Dix, but it's certainly a life changing moment for any fan. I think his first Terrence Dix. Do you recall yours?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, quite, I, I've, quite vividly. It was, uh, it was the three doctors, uh, which I, which I stole, which I borrowed from. I stole, I, I gave it back to him. I, I borrowed from Rob Jones uh, for several months, and I loved it. I mean, I, I, it's very straight ahead writing. I love, I love, you know, Doctor Two, Doctor Doc, the Doctor, Doctor Two. I thought, I thought that was really fun. It, it was, a, it's a great, it's a great novelization, and uh, I remember the first one I bought was uh Arc of Infinity which uh is an odd choice I know but I bought it because I was a massive continuity uh ho and I wanted and I wanted to read the, the the omega coming back which I which at the time I thought was omega because I hadn't actually seen Arc of Infinity on television <laughs> and so and I remember I remember it vividly it's a very it's a mut it's a very engaging novel I always loved Terence's prose style it's a very it's a very it's very kind of um it's very sparse and, but very yeah, evocative. I think the next one I bought of his was The Five Doctors. And I still think it was A Place of Ancient Evil, it is the finest opening line of, of, of a Doctor Who book ever. Um, it's just so evocative and so small, but so perfect.
0: So you always know where you stand with Terrence Dix because when he likes the story that he's adapting, you can tell. Yeah. And when he hates the story that he's adapting, you can also tell. Yes. The last time that I read Ark of Infinity, this is a guy who co-created the Time Lords. This is a guy who co-created Gallifrey. And you could just tell from the way he writes his prose and takes his potshots that he didn't understand what the story was trying to do. And he was just going to go down swinging, making fun of it as he was adapting it. No. So it's almost Terence doing a hate watch. And yet his prose is so good. And yeah. when he's adding character, like talking about how tolerant the people of Amsterdam are, it's just yeah. Terrence on point. Even when he's only writing a 95-page book, he gets in enough uh, jabs or funny asides to make the book just seem a lot longer than it is.
1: I like the way that Terrence kind of explains things. Uh, I've always loved the way Terrence explains things. He does this in Planet of the Spiders, too. But uh, in, in, in Arc of Infinity, there's this wonderful uh, moment where they, he explains why the people, the crowds in Amsterdam are unperturbed by the sight of the police box. And he says, well, you know, it's part of, you know, a, a British tourism display, much like bringing a Rootmaster bus through or something, you know, a double-decker bus. <laughs> <laughs> and, you yeah, know, I've and I thought... That. <laughs> And I thought uh, and and, I, and that's always stayed with me because I just thought because and I remember I recently rewatched uh I rewatched uh, Arkham Infinity and I just thought to myself no I don't I really don't think the the Dutch crowds were were uh, were unperturbed because they because they just assumed it was a British tourism." Tour. <laughs> Somehow, but it it made sense when you're reading the book. It just sort of made you just kind of breeze breeze through it. So yeah, I love that about Terence's stuff.
0: What's funny about the Three Doctors? It's the book that comes out next in publication order, right after Planet of the Spiders. So my faithful listeners who are going to tune in next Sunday will hear me talk about the Three Doctors with a different guest. What struck me back in 2017 when I was reading those books in order for the blog version of this podcast is how much deeper Planet of the Spiders is as a book. It's only about 10 pages longer, maybe, but Mm -hmm. it's got smaller print, so I'd assume it has a higher word count. Probably. Planet begins with this very evocative introduction, none of which appears on TV at all. Terrence just made it up out of whole cloth. There's the whole scene with Professor Cliff Jones. Uh, Rest in peace to Stuart Bevan, who passed away about three days ago as we record this. And Josephine Jones, who is the former Joe Grant. It's Terrence almost writing a love letter to the era that he was co-creating as he's writing the book a few months into the Tom Baker era. When you first read Planet of the Spiders, did you know that opening was invented out of whole cloth? And how did it grab you?
1: it probably grabbed me. I hadn't actually seen any of the Pertwee when I first watched. When I first read *Planet of the Spiders*, that's the thing about it is that, and that's I think the thing I wanted to talk about the most was that was that I hadn't read, I hadn't watched a single a single bit of footage of Pertwee. I read *Planet of the Spiders*, and I do remember when I read it. Uh, I read it in November 1984. The reason why I remember it was ni- November 1984 was that. I had a gigantic crush on, on, on my English teacher in high school. And, uh, and, and she asked me if I would be her secretary on the parent night when the parents come in to go do the, you know, go be, you know, talk with the teachers about their, their students. And, and so, and so, but they had to have each, 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 each uh, student had a, each teacher had a, uh, a student act as a secretary and sort of, you know, keep track of the appointments and make sure that people were sitting com- comfortably outside and such. And so I did that. And and during that, I read Planet of the Spiders, which with the uh, w- with the second edition cover with the with the metabolites. Crystal and 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 the spider on the cover, not the one where you see the doctor's face regenerate. I and so I remember that. Um, I didn't watch my first episode of Pertwee until uh, the week of Christmas, nineteen eighty four. So I it was about I was about I was about two months out from from when I'd actually seen my first Pertwee story. So the Joe stuff did not make the impact. Uh, as a result, I sort of it was it added nice context. I remember when I reread the book a couple of years later, I was like, oh, I get that now. Um, but but it also did a, a wonderful bit of scene setting and, and made it very exciting and big. And you thought, oh, you know, you know, so I wasn't disappointed that Joe wasn't in it, but I wasn't. But at the same time, I really loved that she was, um, even though I hadn't actually I hadn't actually you know seen a, seen a story with Joe Grant in it by the time I'd read the book.
0: You mentioned that you had a crush on your teacher, and as you're sitting in your home recording studio, I can see a wall of peanuts Fantagraphic books in the upper right hand corner of my screen. Yeah. So I need to ask: Was your teacher Miss Othmar?
1: No, it was not. Uh, I, uh, but no, I am, uh, I am very, fo- uh, but I am very fond of those strips, though. Um, and boy, do, boy, howdy, did I, I did I ident- identify with Linus? So, yeah. Uh, most of my life, I have identified with Linus. To be honest, so.
0: <laughs> see, I am a straight-up Charlie Brown. When I was in fifth grade, I lost my school spelling bee. I was one of the two finalists, and I lost the spelling bee when I misspelled the name of the school.
1: Ow! Because
0: I was I was at an elementary school, and the word was elementary, and it was the most gimme word in the history of gimmies and I spelled it wrong. And then I lost the spelling bee on the very next move. And, of course, Charlie Brown famously lost the spelling bee of the Nationals when he misspelled the name of his dog. So there has never been a more Charlie Brown moment than me misspelling the name of my school for all the glory.
1: Ow, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.
0: So you read Planet of the Spiders in November 1984, which is an amazing rhyme because I watched my very first Doctor Who on pbs in november 1984 Mm. time flight part one and then a week later arc of infinity part two the latter of which the cliffhanger is what really hooked me into the show so our our fandoms almost rhyme in that sense i know that i first got my planet of the spiders probably in 1985 at that point i'd had the program guide and i hadn't seen the story yet but i knew that this was the regeneration story Mm. and i was desperate to have it And I was even able to survive that horrible pun on the back cover where the brigadier goes, bless my soul, who will be next? That didn't even throw me. That's right. No. So for me, this was a magical book, and I've read it quite a bit over the years. And even though there are some, shall we say, less fondly remembered elements to Barry Letts' direction, which we'll talk about shortly, Mm -hmm. I think even the parts of the book that fail on television work really well in print, because you're liberated from some of the acting and directing choices. So, I've read Planet of the Spiders probably about every five years as an adult. Um, after 1984, when is the next time that you read Planet of the Spiders?
1: probably read it in the early 90s at some point because i because i I, because i'd finally gotten a copy of the book um uh, rather than stealing rob's rather than stealing rob's so i finally read so i finally had my own copy and i I remember because i remember rereading the the uh, the prologue and going oh yeah that is kind of cool um i and then I did not read it again until until uh, in preparation for this. So this has been a kind of an interesting uh, interesting journey on you know, memory lane. I had very fond memories of this book. Um, I, it, I when I met Terence Dixon uh, in uh, two thousand, I. I brought like six books for him to autograph and, and, and I brought, and Planet of the Spiders was one of them. And it was, it was kind of a, it was, I'd forgotten that I'd done it when I, until I opened it up and saw to Graham best wishes, Terrence Dix. So it was, it was, so yeah, I have, I had tremendous fondness for this book. And I had fondness for this book for, I think I'm probably going to jump on your next question. Um, but I, I think my fondness for the book was, um, it's probably the only time in my life, um, as a doctor who fan where I had that thing that everyone has ever read a target novels claim to have had where they go, Oh my God, it was just so much better in the book. And, and for the most part, I did never had that issue. Like, I, I mean, you know, you know, like I, I remember, you know, reading all kinds of target novels way before I, before, before, uh, before the shows ever came out, because either the episodes were missing, they weren't being broadcast, or because I was, you know, stuck waiting for, you know, when, when PBS would finally show, would finally show me Caves of Andrasani. So there was all kinds of, you know, all kinds of reasons. And so I read most of my target novels long before I'd actually seen the, seen the episode, but Planet of the Spiders, for some reason, it just really felt, um, so much bigger and 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 broader and more epic and uh there's all kinds of things in it that um that i, I remember the one thing that always stuck with me vividly was the bits on metallus 3 particularly when the doctor is when the doctor is blasted by the spider and 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 has to get and sarah has to sneak to the tardis in the middle of the night and and get out the machine and 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 all that stuff felt very very kind of serious and epic and filmic uh reading it in the book and i remember being so disappointed when i finally got to see the you know the sets which are all green screen and 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 very very kind of it's very, uh, it's very, very, it's really cheap. Even by Doctor Who's standards, it's really cheap. And I remember being, and, and the acting is, and the acting is, uh, you know, let's just be generous and say it, 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 you know, it makes, it makes the Twin Dilemma look good. So, uh, <laughs> oh my uh, goodness, so, you know, I just felt like, I just felt like there was, there was some, there was some. You know, I just felt it was very, you know, like I just felt, I felt like there was something real in Planet of the Spiders and there wasn't in the actual, in the actual thing. That, that's certainly what I thought it was as a 14 year old um, when I, when I, when, so that's why this book had its fondness for me. Now, did I stay with that? Well, we'll come back to that later, but, um, but I am, but yeah, that was kind of how I, I, I approached it.
0: You know, that scene where Sarah gets the machine, which drains the bad energy out of the doctor and is then used to determine which gemstones have anti-psychic powers. Growing up as I did in a house that had survived barely the 1970s, if you ever see the photo of me holding my Vinnie Barbarino guitar on my fourth birthday, standing on burnt orange shag carpeting in front of a Jackson Pollock couch, you'll know how barely my household survived the 1970s. So we had The ultimate. This is before the Dustbuster. We had the ultimate in nineteen seventies decor. It was a gray hand vacuum cleaner. Yep. It was a big gray box with red buttons, red switches, not even buttons, and there was a long hose uh, with a little filter attachment at the end, and that was your hand vacuum cleaner. When we got our Dustbuster, that just sat on the back of the closet, unloved. But that was my when I was reading planet of the spiders if i was home alone i would act the book out and i would grab that 70s gray hand vac to play that scene so i was sarah jane using that hand vac to suck the
1: bad spider vibes out of the doctor (laughs) see i I mean i loved all that bit i mean it's it's you know when you're reading it for the first time you know it's dark out it's it's stormy you have this sort of vista in your head that's that terrence construct with very minimal prose and it's all so terribly exciting and so when you actually sort of see it play out in 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 some of the worst design sets in Doctor Who history you're it it, it is it is a really grave disappointment like it, it, it you know like you know it just it just I was so kind of like I remember watching that in 1985 because I finally got to see it Probably, I'd say around March or April, nineteen eighty-five. I can never remember the broadcast schedules, but it was around that time. And I remember going, "Oh, okay, I guess." And I never did that for any other Target novel. Like every other Target novel is like, "Yeah, these are this is just a different thing." Yes, okay, the book. it makes us any more grander in the book, but yes, that, no, this is what this is what the real thing was. I was, I, I remember reading, I remember watching those scenes in Metabulous and going, "Couldn't we get what we had in the book? That was cool." <laughs>
0: So let me ask you about another part of the story that is less fondly remembered. Episode two, the last 10 or 12 minutes of episode oh, yeah. two is the last grand multi-scene, mm-hmm. multi-set, multi-vehicle John Pertwee, James Bond-style chase sequence where you go from Bessie to the gyrocopter to the Humobile to the hovercraft to the speedboat. I have a fondness for that scene more than I do for the corresponding 12-minute-long chase scene in Invasion of the Dinosaurs Mm -hmm. Episode 5, which is coming up on this show in a a month or so. I happen to like that chase scene because I have great fondness for Planet of the Spiders, even in spite of some of Barry Letts' design and direction flaws. Mm. When I read that material in the book, I thought Terrence did a great job of bouncing the POV from character to character as much as the Doctor changes vehicles because he gets into the head of the police officer who's involved in the chase, and he has Sarah's reaction as the Hummobile starts flying. Terrence really enjoyed, I think, adapting that chase scene. Did the chase scene work for you in the book, especially reading it back just now this week in preparation for this recording?
1: It did, but what, what I would point out is that he it's a very super fast gloss over of that scene. Like, you know, this does not take, this is, does not take the equivalent of (laughs) number of pages as this whole second half of an episode. Like he literally gets, does that, that chase sequence in a page and it's, 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 it captures all the nuances of it, does it really well by doing the multiple points of view, as you say. And, and it, but it's, 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 bang 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 and he's, he's through it and he's done and it's it's very kind of super condensed and and i and i and i kind of liked it for that reason because i think he i think he knew that you know it was fun as hell to watch on television i love that scene too um there's so much to i mean i mean it, it is a gigantically self-indulgent thing to do for the sake of an actor who cares? It's a lot of fun to watch. Um, and the Who Mobile flies. And so, you know, um I what I love uh, is that the point of views start even in the opening scene of that whole sequence where you have the point of view of the unit officer who takes great pride in in cleaning the doctor's car. Uh, oh, yes, which, I, yes. which I thought was adorable. Um and 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 even and, he, and Terence, being Terrence, he pauses for a moment to explain why Lupton could just wander on to a unit base and not get not. And, and it was like, well, yeah, of course you could, because, you know, everyone sort of knew that it was a broadly a military base. But, you know, if you're outside, it was fine. And, and it's only when you get inside that you have to need passes and everything. And I thought, well, that's just classic Terrence, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, how can this guy just blithely walk up? Um, so yeah, no, it, I mean, it sets it up really well. Um, and the scene, but it's, 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 it's a very lean thing. Like he he's, he's more concerned with other things. I mean, the other thing I love the opposite thing happens uh when he's doing the whole lead up to the end of episode uh well when he's leading up to the uh to the the, the illusion of the tractor that's that you know to drive uh, to drive them off the road and towards the end of episode one when the spider first appears both those things he really elaborates on them and he and he and he sort of builds it up and makes it much more epic than it actually is in the tv version and so so he so he's obviously sort of figuring out well I can I can cut down I can cut down that ridiculous chase scene to a, to a tight to a tight one page, but I can expand the end of episode one to something that's actually really scary. So yeah,
0: I one day should do a supercut of all the times where Terrence uses one perfectly crafted sentence to explain away gaping plot holes, like in Warriors <laughs> in Warriors of the Deep. Fortunately, Buluk knew how to navigate sea bases ventilation shafts to get from point A to point B. <laughs> i mean there's just no way that anybody is going to know that and of course terrence goes fortunately he knew his way around yeah, boom and ex- plot hole plot hole solved
1: exactly exactly and, and terrence always does that i mean he's, he's always thinking he's always thinking on his feet like you know what is the reader who is going to be mostly juvenile who's going to be mostly a doctor an obsessive doctor who fan you know what are they thinking about and let me try let me let me try and address that um But yeah, I mean, the thing I wanted to point out, I wanted to go back to just a second and talk about the way that he sort of extended it. Like, the lovely bit of... it's, it's, It's an amazing bit of prose because you have the, like all these redolent little moments where he does the inner cutting but he does the inner cutting in such an interesting way like he he has like these long these long passage about Mikey H driving the sports car and then all of a sudden it cuts to like in brackets he has in the cellar of the monastery the circle of chanting figures was once more assembled their voices rose and fell in guttural chant and then all of a sudden he cuts back to you know Sarah frowned and shook her head and it's like so it's it's he he really nicely kind of captures the inner cutting probably even better than it was done in in the show um, Um, And and it's just it's just, again, economy of prose, and just knowing how to how to how to punch it.
0: There has been a phenomenon in real life. It's called the Mandela effect. But in Doctor Who fans, it's where you vividly remember having seen a scene on television. Mm -hmm. And then you go back to watch the show again 20 years later on the Blu-ray and the scene is not there. And it turns out it was only ever in the book. But you thought it had been on TV the whole time because Terrence's books are so vivid. Were there any Mandela Effect moments for you? The last time you watched *Planet of the Spiders*, that you were convinced should have been on TV, but in fact were really just a memory from the book?
1: No, actually, no. no. I mean, that's happened for me with a couple of other, with a couple other Target novels, particularly, particularly, uh, particularly for. Uh, um Particularly for Colin Baker's Doctor, I've been doing a rewatch of Colin Baker's Doctor, and going, "Well, why isn't there?" That's oh, that's right. That's that's actually in the novelization. Okay, so I didn't really ha- ever have that happen with uh, with uh, with this one, though. Um, you know, for the most part, I just had that sort of effect of oh, this is this is much more. This is much more. <laughs> disappointing um in 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 the actual realization than i i than i'd remembered it being um and every and i have to say it still hurts every time i watch a metabilis 3 scene. so not to flog that thing any further but and the funny thing is is that the spiders i'm perfectly cool with maybe because i'd seen a bit of planet of the spiders when i was five but but i but i was cool i was cool with the spiders the spiders are like fine you know it's the best you can do back in back in 1974. I, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was for me, yeah, it was just for me, all the menabilia stuff.
0: The spiders have great voices, you know, you have especially Kismet yeah. Delgado in there, and the great one is just having an incredible time in the recording booth, and Terrence tries to capture that by writing the great ones in all capital letters, yep. and her final rant before her brain explodes, he writes it almost as poetry rather than um, yeah.
1: yeah
0: in straight lines of dialogue. So you've read Planet of the Spiders probably, mm-hmm. let's say, three times. You read it at age yeah. 14.
1: Yeah.
0: You read it again in your early 20s. Yeah. And then flash forward 30 years, you're reading it now in your late 30s here in the year 2022. Did the book change for you? Did your perception of the book change? Did it improve? Did it seem not quite as good as you remembered? How has the passage of time affected your enjoyment of the novelization?
1: My reread of in the, in the 90s was reasonably pleasant I seem to recall. I don't really have a, have any real stand memories other than the prologue. Um between the the initial read and now I had the oh, the first half of the novel I love. The first half of the novel, you know, you know, 2022 20, me loved uh everything that was being done. That passage I just read uh is is amazing. There's a lot of great things. Uh, the way he sort of condenses the sort of sillier bits is, is also good. I think rereading it now, I was very, um, it's the second half of the book that I find the most disappointing. He takes out all, he takes out all the emotional beats, um, which I found very frustrating. Like, uh, for me one of the finest scenes in 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 the television story is uh, the scene when Tommy has a sort of flowers for Algernon moment and the blue crystal kind of makes it and and Terence Terence compresses it to nothingness where it's kind of like almost incidental that Tommy has become super intelligent and 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 it's and I get that you know it gets John John Kane is an amazing actor and and I think he I think he totally sells that performance in a way that um no other actor in, and he's, he's one of my favorite supporting actors in doctor who as a result and i and i think that he and i think that there was um i think you know maybe trying to recapture that is hard but i also kind of felt like uh, a more straight up adaptation of that scene could have worked um but he's very kind of he's very kind of matter of fact and i, I felt that kind of beat the emotional beat the emotional beat that i'm really mad about is that um there's a lot built about the fact that the third doctor meets faces his fear is that is that is that the 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 great one you know basically makes the doctor completely vulnerable and there's that wonderful bit where is that fear i sense doctor and 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 i love that and i love that that scene and it was a big enough that that you know Barry Letts even did a full quick flashback to it just in case you missed episode five. Here right. it is again in episode six, just to, emphasize, just to emphasize how important it is. And then you have the doctor saying, I had to do it. I had to face my fear. And that's all completely out of it. And I don't know why, whether whether Terrence just felt that it didn't make the doctor seem heroic or he or is just something Barry did that he didn't agree with and he was kind of overruled or or what, but it's, it's, it's gone. And, and the doctors and, and this, and the whole kind of, which I think, I think diminishes the heroism of, of the third doctor's final act. And I, and I felt really kind of, and so I was really, really put out by it because I because I felt like the first half I'm like, oh yeah, this is everything I remember and this is this is this is so good. And all the stuff with Professor Clegg in this book is so amazing and he and he really flushes Clegg's bit out in in really great ways. There's just so much in the first half of this book that is so good. And the second half is like he, is like he's he keeps on just kind of diminishing the bits. And even even, even Campo and Pochet's kind of contribution gets kind of sanded off, I feel so yeah, I I, I was I was, I was, I ended up, I started it really excited and, and, and thought I was just, this is going to be a slam dunk. This is, I'm going to be just talking about how great this is and how much better this is in the, the, than the TV show. And I ended it actually going, actually the TV show actually ends up being a much better um it does for the things that it was doing that it was innovating actually like it, it basically takes the innovation of planet of the spiders is that it tries to give the doctor actual emotional journey in it and and it also tries to and it also has kind of emotional journeys for several other characters and and that's all kind of that's all kind of taken out of this and and i feel that's that's kind of I get why Terrence did that. He probably just wanted a more straight-ahead straight ahead adventure that the kids could read. I, I think it was a mistake. So, yeah, I was very disappointed.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because the regeneration scene is condensed into a three-page epilogue. And granted, it's very small print, so it's probably five yeah. or six pages in a later Target book. Yeah, But I don't think I even noticed it. You're right. That, that, that bit about having to face my fears is more important than going on living. It's cut out, and the Doctor only has two or three lines in one long paragraph, and then he dies. And also, Planet of the Spiders was the end of a trilogy of stories for Mikey Yates, going from Green Death to Invasion of the Dinosaurs to this. And those three books came out of order in the target line. That's right. But it's Mike going from Hero to Traitor to Redemption. And that's also sanded off a little bit for the book, which is surprising, given that Terrence would have been a co-creator of Captain Yates and would have yeah. been there for the planning of that entire story arc and Mike doesn't really register as much in the book as perhaps Richard Franklin did on television
1: that's true too I, I and, and it's interesting like uh the things that the brigadier says to even telegraph that the doctor regenerated before which is clearly in dialogue in in the in the television version is out of here like he actually has the brigadier starting to say that when the TARDIS arrives in in in, in the in his rewriting of the final scene and I, I feel that's kind of a disappointment because I feel like there's there's so much there's so much richness of that final scene It's it's a it's a frustrating thing reading uh final scenes of doctors in the target books because none of them are frankly as good as what happens on television uh you know we could we could spend all the night talking about you know the the whole the whole the whole complete wrongness of the 10th planet's final scene but it just but it just kind of of goes all the way through every single one really case of androzani's novelization isn't bad but it's kind of flat but yeah Rogopoulos doesn't really have Rogopoulos gives us an opening line for davison but it doesn't really have a it's not as it's not nearly as impactful um yeah the rest of them aren't either
0: I think that Terence's handling of the regeneration in Andrew Zani is a million times better than here because he tells the yeah. regeneration from the doctor's point of view. Yeah. He talks about Adric is dead, but then again so was he. And he again yeah. writes that almost in poetry format with single line sentences. So
1: That's true.
0: I think Caves stands up much better compared to this. Here the regeneration, the doctor's you know already dead and it's just you know his features blur and change and that's about it. You get a longer regeneration on the original Peter Brooks cover of the novelization with the four it's faces. True than you do in, in the text of the book. I'm going to disagree slightly. Yeah, big shock. Jason and Graham disagree about something. I know, really. Um, I, I read these books when I was you know much younger. I would have read Planet of the Spiders at age 12. There were two times when I was sitting there in English class in high school in the late 1980s when we read a poem for class out loud, and I suddenly read, wait a minute, I know this from a Terrence Dix novelization. <laughs> and that's twice that I was grabbed by the, oh, wait a minute, Terrence Dix has been teaching me the great, the great English poets. Yeah. The first time is in 10th grade, we're sitting there in Ms. Montalbano's class reading The Rime of the Ancient Mariner out loud. And I ended up being the student called to read the stanza, like one who on a lonesome road does walk in fear and dread. And I'm halfway through the stanza, it took every ounce of coolness that I don't have to not blurt out this is from Image of the Fendal because I can tell you as sure as eggs is eggs I was the only person in the class who would have read Image of the Fendal but I suddenly recognized that bit of poetry that Terrence condensed for Image of the Fendal because I'm sitting there out loud in 1989 reading it in English class The other time that happened to me is when in a different English class, I forget, Wayne, we had to read The Tiger by William Blake. Oh, yeah, Yeah. I know this from Planet of the Spiders. I have fonder memories, I should say, of Tommy's transformation sequence because it has William Blake in there and because I recognized it in English class a couple of years later.
1: It is, it is. I mean, that, that is, that is a nice beat that he puts in it, but yeah, I, I was, I was like, you know, again, it's one of those things where he condenses he can, condense, he can, condense, he condenses down, you know, he condenses down what's like three or four minutes in the TV version to like, to like far, five or six paragraphs. And it's very, it, it, it's, it, it feels like it could have gotten more of its due, I think. Um, although I did like the bit from the tiger, uh, that was, that was kind of cool. Um, it's almost
0: like Malcolm Hulk syndrome though, where the first half of the novelization is the first one or two episodes out of six on TV. Yep. And by the end of it, Terence has to fairly race yeah. through. I think I think the part six material here starts in the middle of chapter eleven. So the part six material is very condensed, a chapter and a half, and then that cursory three page
1: Yeah
0: epilogue. So for you, what is the definitive Terence Dix novelization?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I'm quite fond of the Five Doctors. I have to say, uh, I, I, I mean, I do love, I do, I do love the Auton Invasion a lot. Like, I think the Auton Invasion is head and shoulders uh, one of his finest works. Partially because he just thought this was a one-off, and and so I think he put more of himself and more time into into the actual writing of it than probably any other. But honestly, uh, pound for pound, my favorite of his novelizations is is is. Uh, is is uh, the five doctors? It's it's the sparseness of it. I love the opening line. I love I love all the all, all the story beats are really great. He just kind of he 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 manages to. He manages to sort of build on the sort of camaraderie of, of of the characters on screen, and and sort of and sort of really improve it. Like the Doctor's relationship with Sarah on screen is great, but but it's really wonderfully rendered in prose. Uh, I really love how I really love his how he even creates or creates the Hartnell Doctor probably to feel even more like a Hartnell doctor than than the Richard Herndl doctor I think um I, I and I love uh, and I love particularly his his uh, his, uh, his his the way he renders the uh, second doctor uh, brigadier relationship um so yeah I have, I have a I think I think my my pick for favorite favorite Terence novel is the five doctors.
0: And Five Doctors has the added advantage of the extra scene where you see Susan in the 22nd century That's right. before she's grabbed up by the time scoop, which was never mounted for television. So right. how did you get to meet Terrence stick You said you met him the one time and had him sign about half a dozen books. How, how did yeah. you meet him?
1: Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, back in 2000, uh, we were all talking about uh, trying to do some kind of a, a convention in Toronto. And uh and my friend at the time, Mike, uh, and uh, and uh, and me and a couple others were all talking about it. And I guess, I guess, uh, one friend of ours, Eric, I, 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 it's been it's it's been twenty two years, so I don't I, I don't remember the quite how the sequence goes. I think Eric talked to Paul Cornell and and said, "Well, what about Terrence Dix?" And he said, "Oh, uh, his phone numbers his phone numbers listed in the directory. Why don't you just call him?" Huh. And so our fr- so our friend Mike called him up and said, hey, would you be willing to come to Toronto for uh, for for uh, for a con- one day convention? And, you know, we'll show you around and, you know, put you up in a hotel. And and Terrence said, oh, yeah, sure. No problem. That sounds lovely. And so so he came to Toronto in, in November twenty uh, November 2000. And, uh, and I was one of the, I was one of the convention organizers. And at the time I was editing a, a fanzine called enlightenment. Uh, and to which so I, I was a contributor briefly. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. You were. And so I had, uh, so yeah, I, I interviewed Terrence for, 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 for the, my fans, fanzine. I met him like the day before, uh, and, and I went to a bar, uh, Pretty much not about a couple, couple about a block away from where he was staying, and I had about five beers with him, and he proceeded to, and and this was the early two thousands when a lot of the stuff that, stories that he stories they eventually committed to DVDs hadn't happened yet so a lot of these were completely new to me so like I was getting stories about you know uh how John Pertwee and, and Patrick Troughton didn't get on during the during the five three doctors and which I didn't know about and so it was like oh my god this is incredible stuff um and but yeah and then I went and then I went out with him and uh, a bunch of us went out for uh for a contributors party and and then we went to the did the convention? Then after the convention, I hung out with them a lot. I don't know how I—I'm I, convinced I lost about thirty percent of my liquor, my liver that weekend um, because. <laughs> <laughs> because because all I did was drink with with, with, with Terrence Dix and that man was a prodigious drinker um and uh, and and he just he just knew how to have a good time like he was just one of those he was an amazing raconteur he had a tremendous sense of humor about things he always had a great story about 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 things not even just dr who you could talk to him about anything and he would just he would just have he would, he was one of the all-time best raconteurs it was one of the finest weekends of my life and it's so funny about a year ago I was here it was just after i'd i'd uh put up the bookshelf and put up put up my target books and i i we were i think i was talking on someone on facebook about about books taryn that we had autographed by actors and i and i bought off ebay a first edition copy of doctor who and the Auton Invasion that had been already autographed by by john pertwee um and uh it cost me an obscene amount of money, and this is an obscene amount of nineteen ninety nine money. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was, I, 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 it was one of those auctions that I was like, oh my god, I did, it! and I was like, and I'm not going to be eating food for the next two weeks okay so yeah it was it was it was not one of my better moments but on the other hand i got a cool novelization and i subsequently had terrence novel uh, autograph and i had uh, nick courtney not, uh, autograph it so one day i'll put it on ebay and i'll make a i'll make a tenth of what i spent it i spent on it back in <laughs> 1999 because no one cares about these things anymore but nonetheless it's very cool so i got i wanted to go sh- show a uh 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 a photograph of the page on my uh on this facebook group, group and i opened it up and there was a photo of me and terrence uh from that from that weekend and oh, it was wow. like, i was like oh my god and it was just about a year after he died so yeah it was it was it was a, uh, yeah it was a lovely it was a lovely moment and uh i actually have a, a one other terrence dick story which i've actually never i actually I have never I, I was supposed to put on reality mom and never did so you guys you're getting an exclusive here uh jason um thank you so so back in 1985 I had there are two Doctor Who fans I knew in the world one was my best friend Rob and the other was this guy named Bob. I did a I did a editorial about this guy about this guy named Bob. Uh, he, was a, he was a he was a he was a classmate. He was big into Doctor Who fandom. He he was really connected. He went to conventions. He he did all kinds of things. He 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 just was really you know. And then one day he just suddenly stopped being a fan. I was like, what the fuck? And so yeah, he was very it was very strange. Uh, but anyway, so while he was a fan, he he had the idea that he wanted to make a fan video well okay and so i so he asked me if i'd want to write a script for us said sure so i i wrote a parody it was called doctor who and the attack of the garbageman and the <laughs> plot and the plot of the doctor who and the attack of the garbageman is that the doctor and his companion ramona are uh have landed in 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 coronation park in oakville where i grew up in oakville ontario uh and uh and they're menaced by walking garbage coming from emerging from lake ontario um so it's people people dressed in garbage bags emerging from lake ontario and it's 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 animated garbage and it turns out to be a plot by the uh the master's earliest incarnation the novice uh (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, i engaged in that little thing we actually have one portion that was was actually meant to be uh exposition delivered by a singing mountie we 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 pulled out all the stops for this thing um and we actually cast it i was going to play the doctor my sister was going to play the ramona my uh my friend rob was going to play play the novice my friend my friend my under i had another friend named bob and he was going to be the singing mountie it was it was really funny um and then for some reason because we're all teenagers it didn't happen Uh, I I don't actually really remember the reasons, but I think we, I think, I think it just, Bob didn't, Bob didn't want to do it all of a sudden or something anyways, got pulled. But anyways, at some point uh, during the lead up for all that, Bob took this print out of the script. He was working at a convention in, I think it was Rochester. It was either Rochester or Niagara Falls. I can't remember which one now. Um, And, and it was a con that I think Janet Fielding was at, JNT was at, and Terrence was at. And so he was working as a, as one of those porters or runners that they, you know, used to get, you know, guest liaison used to have. And so he got to talk with Terrence a little bit and I guess he gave Terrence a copy of the script. And so Terrence, Terence went away and, and, and then he gave it back to Bob w- with a note on it. And it said, oh, my. it said, this is really sharp and funny and made me laugh. And he inserted it out loud several times, great, <laughs> great jokes. And a good ecological point, all the best Terence dicks. Wow. And, I, and, I, and I was like, how on earth? And I asked him like years later, do you remember reading this? He's of course not. And I thought, yeah, I figured," <laughs> but but you have to think about this. Like This is a guy who is in the middle of a convention and, and you just came home from a convention and you know what a whirlwind of, of experiences that thing is where you're constantly moving from one place to another. And when you're a guest, you're constantly getting shuttled to from one place to another, to another, to another, and, and then having either talk or autograph or, or whatever. How he found the time to go read that little skit and then write that note is astounding to me. Like he was just... That kind uh, of person, and he was that kind. Period. So, yeah, no, that was it. Was a, it was a lovely moment. So,
0: when you were sitting there, and if you're going to lose thirty percent of your liver, losing it to Terrence Dix is certainly the way to go. I've always but felt that. Did he, at any point in that conversation, telling stories about the 1970s, use the word buffon?
1: He did not. Sadly, <sighs> so, sadly, sadly. I did ask him about his prose style, though, and and he did, and I remember he said he was a big fan, and I don't think he's ever said that in any other interview, but he said to me he was a big fan of George Simeonson, who wrote the McRae novels. Oh, and wow. he was a big, fan, he was a big fan of Magray. And, and so I think he, and so he emulated that now people have always connected him with Marlowe. Um, and, and, and there is a, there is a lot of Philip Marlowe and, uh, in, 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 and in, in, in his work, but yeah, he, uh, but yeah, uh, George Simeonson is also another big influence on him apparently. Um, so, yeah.
0: I always enjoy when you can spot a quote from another author inside a novelization, the way, Terrence dropped some Shakespeare on the last page of Ambassadors of Death talking about Band of Brothers. <laughs> and there's a few other examples of that over the, of that over the years. But um, I'm looking for uh, to try a new segment on Doctor Who literature, and I'm going to have you be our first subject. Okay. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to cut it out of the recording, and if it does work, okay. it'll become a weekly feature. Okay. This is Doctor Who 20 Questions. Okay. I have gone to what I believe is called randomizer.net, and I have picked one random Doctor Who story out of the entire run, 1963 okay. to 2022. Okay. And you are going to guess which story was randomly selected by 20 questions. You can ask me 20 questions, yes or no, and we'll see if you can narrow down what story have been, okay. has been randomly selected.
1: Okay. All right, sure, I'll give it a whirl. Okay, all right, here we go. Let's see if the second one's going to work. Okay, is is it a classic series story or a a modern series story?
0: it got to be a yes or no question.
1: Classic series story. No, it is not. Okay. uh, Question two. Russell Davies era story.
0: No. Question
1: three. Moffat era story.
0: Ooh, good guesses. Uh, No. Question four.
1: Chibnall era story.
0: Yes. Question five. uh,
1: Series 12.
0: Yes, it is a series 12 story. Question six.
1: Is it a New Year's special?
0: Yes, it is. Question seven.
1: Does it have multiple Daleks in it?
0: No, it does not.
1: Is it revolution? Res- resol- resolution. Resolution. Is it resolution?
0: Yes, it is resolution.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right. That was good. You got
0: an eight. You see, you had a very methodical, very methodical way of going era by era, season by season. So you got to it in a hurry. <laughs> well, there you go. All right. So, uh, Graham, I want to thank you very much. Before I let you go... Where else can our viewers or listeners, I should say, find you in the podcasts, in the books, on the internet?
1: Uh, okay, well, uh, the books I have done are uh, are the books with, uh, with Stacey Smith, uh, and they are Who is the Doctor and Who is the Doctor 2, which was published last year, uh, no, published in 2020, I keep on forgetting, we're sort of, we're sort of in year two of, of 2020, so I just kind of, <laughs> yes. it, it all kind of, so yeah, we, we last published our last book together in 2020, uh, it was Who's the Doctor 2, we've done a couple others, Who's 50, uh, the Doctors are in, uh, several others. So you can find me in print there. Um, they, they're all available on the various forms of Amazon. I appear frequently in Stacy Smith's Outside In collection. I have one in the, her upcoming uh, Twin Peaks uh, collection, and I will be reviewing Pyramids of Mars in their in their new uh, in their new Doctor Who collection, which I. Oh, Stacey, an article. Sorry, and <laughs> Stacey used to me being profoundly late with these things. Uh, on 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 the air, you can follow. You can listen to me on Reality Bomb, which is a podcast I co-host with uh, Joy Piedmont, and uh, that can be found at uh and uh, anywhere you get your fine your fine Doctor Who podcasts. Uh, you can get this one. It's a it's a monthly uh, it's a monthly magazine show that sort of tries to resemble a good NPR uh, when I can. Uh,
0: Hence my comparison to Terry to uh, Terry Gross earlier. Oh,
1: oh, that's kind of you. And uh, otherwise, uh, I'm on Twitter. I, my My Twitter handle is at Graham Burke. So uh, G R A E M E B U uh, R K. And uh, I yeah, I'm trying to think what else you can find me. Uh, I think it's been announced. I think it was announced at Gallifrey. I, I, if I'm not, well, guess guess your listeners get another exclusive scoop. I am currently working on a biography of Doctor Who producer uh, and legend Ter- Philip Hinchcliffe. Uh, that was if it
0: was announced, I was not in the room, so that is news to me. Thank you.
1: Yes, um, yes, it's. Uh, I, I'm currently working on that for uh, for uh, cut the good find people at Cutaway Comics, um, and uh, and they they're they're doing a a uh a a, a print uh, a print branch and i will be and i will be doing uh i think their first book for that and so i'm sure there'll be news on their on their site about it soon uh i'm currently it's still in the process of of doing the research for it but it's good but it's an authorized biography i've been interviewing philip hinchcliffe all last summer that's uh that's that's a, i call that a good day uh, and
0: I... that is a wonderful way to pass the time
1: indeed indeed so that that's been a lot of fun and uh yeah i'm hoping to go go to do the bbc archives this uh this uh later this summer and uh and do some further research for it and uh yeah i got to talk to louise jameson last week that was that was kind of cool um so yeah so no i guess it's it's so i'm doing the the doctor who nerd living the dream
0: very exciting the episode of Reality Bomb that is a tribute to Terrence Sticks is episode 072. Uh, my slim vocal talents also appear, performing a bit of the novelization of The Power of Kroll, of all things, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as some of your books.
1: Oh, ah, excellent. Well, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're really, uh, Jason is underselling himself. Jason was one of the guests in our tribute to Terrence Dix and uh, he, was sort of, he was sort of, he sort of, he sort of was, wasn't, was a, was an anchor for that. I re- it was really great to be able to talk to him and, and he manages to make lots of really great self deprecating jokes along the way, um, but have some wonderful insights about Terrence in it too.
0: Thank you. Well, Graham, thank you very much for joining us here on Doctor Who Literature Hope to have you back again real soon now. Have a great night. Thanks very much.
1: You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a
0: sigh. Next time. Omega, don't forget Omega, as if you could. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Graham Burke. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's D-R-Who Novels, and you can also find me on the Trap One podcast from time to time. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Dr. Who pilgrimage, That's Dr. Who pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time we'll be discussing Doctor Who and the Three Doctors from November 1975. It's the end of the Target Line's second very successful year, and we'll again be joined by a very special guest, who's back for a second appearance on Doctor Who Literature. Thank you for listening. And whatever you do, keep turning the pages.